You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Matthew chapter 5, where in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. As we turn there, it's important for us to remember that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. It's his emphasis. It's his focus. The coming king that the people of Israel were waiting for, going all the way back into the days of the Old Testament, when God had promised to King David that there would come a king from his ancestry who would never cease to be seated upon the throne. Ever since that time, the people of Israel were waiting for this coming figure, waiting for this anointed one, waiting for this Christ, waiting for this messianic figure to come. And Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. And as the king, Jesus is going to declare here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his kingdom manifesto, you could call it, the way of life in his kingdom. And so... It's an important passage of scripture as far as understanding the law in the Old Testament and the true meaning of the law. It's an important passage of scripture to understanding how to enter into his kingdom. But the real life of the kingdom is described by Jesus here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, as we saw in chapter 4, We've noted that the popularity and fame of Jesus is now on the rise. He's gone through his baptism, chapter 3. He's gone through his temptation in the wilderness, chapter 4. And now he's begun to work miracles and gain quite a following, especially up in the region of Galilee. And the Galilee is the area that the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spend most of their time on the Galilean ministry of Christ, whereas John focuses much of his attention on the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. And so it says in verse 1, at the beginning here of his ministry, the popularity of Christ swelling, it says in verse 1 that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, Jesus here gathers with this group of people, his followers, and he begins to teach them. And even now, traditionally, there are sites that we would say that perhaps housed this event. Uh, Hillsides on the Sea of Galilee. Mountains, so to speak. Hillsides that they would gather, that Jesus would use the natural acoustics of the land and preach this message and this sermon. Luke records a similar sermon. There are some slight variations in it. I tend to believe and think that Jesus had a standard message that he delivered in various settings to various people. There were no recording devices, you know, for people to be able to replay a message and watch it on video or hear it in audio. And so I think Jesus just repeated this same message in various settings. But here it happens uh, on this place called a mountain. And when he sat down as the teacher in those days, he would be the one seated. His disciples came to him. 
and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. It's just a statement of great anticipation in verse 2, that he opens his mouth and he begins to teach. There is something powerful here. Jesus has yet to really teach. He's been preaching up to this point. He has been saying in Matthew 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here now he opens his mouth, and it is time not for preaching, but for teaching. He's going to instruct this group of people who have expressed an interest in him. Now at the close of this message, way at the end of chapter 7, it will tell us that the people listen to Jesus, not as the religious leaders, but as one who taught with authority. You know, Jesus wasn't going to follow their practice of merely quoting others. Jesus was going to actually speak from a position of authority himself. The first thing that he gave to his disciples was a list of what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed attitudes found in these first few verses. And the first one is so important. Because it belongs in the first position. He says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, here Jesus has gone around and he's begun now teaching and preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here now Jesus announces how access to the kingdom of heaven is gained. And it's gained, he says, through this thing called being poor in spirit. Now, first of all, poor in spirit or poverty of spirit is not simple poverty in the natural physical realm. He doesn't say poor in the natural or poor in the physical. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So when he says that, of course, the question is, well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because if I am poor in spirit, then I can attain to the kingdom of heaven. I can become a member of this kingdom. Well, when you read the rest of the New Testament, and even as you go back into the Old Testament, you understand that to become one of God's children, to be placed within God's family, In the New Testament, to receive the righteousness of Christ, to receive the inheritance of Christ, to become a co-heir with Christ, means that a person places their faith in the cross of Christ. You know, a belief and a trust in Jesus' substitutionary death for them, right? Well, what is required to even begin to receive and believe that message. Well, the thing that's required is a humility inside of a person's heart, a poverty of spirit. When a person has pride within their hearts and a a real arrogance within them, when they hear the gospel, there's a natural tendency to scoff at the gospel. It becomes a stumbling block to that person because they hear it and they hear things like you are dead in sin they hear things like you are in need of a savior they hear things like you are 
full of wickedness and deceit. And when they hear these things, when they hear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, a person without poverty of spirit scoffs and rejects that message. But a person who is poor in spirit, they pause and realize that they are truly dead indeed in their sin. And they see a deep need for the gospel. And so poverty of spirit is really that first position when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. When it comes to the kingdom of Christ, the first thing that has to happen in a person's heart is a real poverty of spirit to be and to rest within them. This is the person who sees the glory of God. This is like Isaiah when he saw the glory of God in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and saw the train of his robe filling the temple. And he said, Woe is me, for I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and I am a man of unclean lips. This is poverty of spirit. He sees the glory of God and he realizes the fallenness in his own heart. And so poverty of spirit is a requirement just for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But then to experience what the kingdom of heaven is like, even here on earth, a person needs to maintain that position of real poverty of spirit and poverty of heart. To say, God, you are infinite and I am so finite. And so Jesus expressed this first, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, he gives the second beatitude. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is far from just a trite, ecclesiastical saying. You know, just sort of mentioning, Hey, you know, in times that there is mourning and weeping, don't worry because a day of comfort is coming. No, you think of it as attached to the poverty of spirit. Agreeing with God and saying, yes, there is this deep sin within me. God is unlike me. Therefore, I do receive and want to trust in this gospel that he has prepared for me. Well, when he speaks of mourning, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, There must be a connection in the sense that this is a person now in the kingdom who they are mourning over sin. And I think that God's children, one of the characteristics of those in the kingdom, is, you know, really a sense of pain over sin. They don't take sin lightly. It's one of the scariest things for me when I meet someone who is a named Christian, who scoffs at their sin, who when you rebuke them and you say, hey, listen, you're you're not allowed to fornicate with your girlfriend. You're not allowed to indulge in pornography. This is not right for you to experience drunkenness. You're living a greedy, covetous life. When you see these elements and a person sort of knows, like I, I know that I'm living this way, and yet they then say, but it's fine. You know, God is a God of grace. It's a scary position to hold because Jesus describes people in his kingdom as those who mourn over sin. They weep over sin. There's a brokenness over sin, not just in themselves, but in others and in the world. Like when Jesus wept at the 
tomb of Lazarus. You know, and of course, we know that he wasn't weeping over somehow missing his good friend Lazarus. He knew that in a couple of minutes, he and Lazarus would be high-fiving and embracing one another after Jesus raised him from the grave. No, it was that Jesus was mourning and weeping and, and bitterly grieved and even to the point of anger over what he was watching as the results of sin. And so we know that the Lord has called us to be a people who are grieved over sin. Then Jesus goes on in verse 5 and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this is such a wonderful attribute that Jesus is speaking of, but oftentimes it's an attribute that is misunderstood. We often describe meekness as mere weakness, willing to just let anyone do anything to us or against us, a real passivity, a total weakness. But although there is a place for turning the other cheek and there is a great strength in that, meekness indicates strength under control. This would be the kind of word that you would use to describe a powerful animal like a horse who allows itself to be put under a bridle and submitted to a master who rides upon it. And so in one sense, what you have with meekness is a willingness from God's people, those in the kingdom, to say, I'm going to allow God to lead my life. I'm going to follow his standards and his dictates for my life. And what Jesus says here is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what does Jesus say quite constantly in the Gospels? That if a man loses his life for his sake in the Gospels, he will find it. And Jesus asks the question, what will it gain a man? What will it profit a man? What good will it be for a man if he gains the world yet loses his soul? And here what Jesus is announcing is that the opposite is true. That when a man submits himself to the leadership of God, follows his standards and, and his life, when a man has been changed internally to live that kind of life, well, what you're seeing there is a man or a woman who at some point in time is going to inherit the earth. They are going to rule and reign with him. Now, those first three Beatitudes are very internal in nature, don't you think? Poverty of spirit, mourning, meek, these are internal in nature. But now here in verse 6, we move into action. And he says, blessed are those who hunger, verse 6, and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, in the culture, at least, that I live in, uh, to speak of hung hunger and to speak of thirst, these are elements that we aren't all that familiar with. I used to be a youth pastor, and I can't tell you how many times a 15-year-old boy would look at me and say, Oh, man, I am starving. And, of course, everybody understood that what they weren't saying is, I am literally at the point where I have gone for 40 days now, or nearly 40 days without food, and my body is beginning to consume itself, and I am dying of starvation. <laughs> no, that's not it at all. Usually what they mean is, uh, it's been a couple of hours since my last meal, 
and something is going on. I am very hungry and I feel like I could eat anything and I am starving. All right. Uh, We know little of hunger and we know little of, of thirst as well. We live in a culture where people walk around with water bottles, you know, in their backpacks and go on journeys with water attached to them. I mean, we've got water all over the place, indoor plumbing. Uh, We don't live in a culture where you had to go out to the common well and draw your water for the day. And so hunger and thirst meant a lot more back in the time of Christ than it means to many of us in the developed world today. So you think about that. You think about what it would be like to to have one meal a day. You think of what it would be like to have just enough water for the day. And you think about that hunger and you think about that thirst. And Jesus said there's a blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What they're longing for, what they desire so badly, is they're desiring a righteousness in lifestyle. You know, they they want to be pure. They want to be holy. There's a strong desire for practical righteousness within them. And I think what Jesus is describing here is a true disciple. And a true disciple, a real believer. Uh, Someone who, as Jesus says in John 10, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. Someone who is hearing the voice of the good shepherd One of the desires inside of their lives is a desire for personal growth and transformation. And so here Jesus says, this person, they desire that growth. They desire that righteousness. They long for it. They're not necessarily just satisfied with who they are. They want to see the nature and the character of Christ change and transform them, Jesus says that person will be satisfied. Then he says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Oh, this is beautiful. This is an inherited trait from our Heavenly Father. Right? Where we take this God who is so merciful. When Moses asked God to reveal himself, What did God say of himself? You know, he says, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so here from our heavenly father, as we've been born again and placed into the kingdom, one of the elements or the attributes or the characteristics that we receive that we then want to cultivate is this attitude of being a merciful person like our father. You know, in this world that is so out for revenge, the believer says, no, you know, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Judgment belongs to him. And I'm going to extend mercy. And I found that one of the hardest things to do as a believer who loves the word of God, has an appreciation for his word, it's so hard not to be a judgmental kind of person. It's so hard to deliver that mercy. And to say, you know, there may be a, a element of judgment and justice that I must execute, but actually it's not mine to execute. Blessed are the merciful, he says, for they shall receive mercy. There's just something beautiful about these people, beautiful about a person who can say, you know what, I was wronged and I'm going to extend 
mercy in this area. Just a beautiful thing. Then Jesus goes on and says in verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, you know, the merciful, they shall receive mercy. But the pure in heart, verse 8, they shall see God. Now, this purity is speaking of a cleanliness or a cleanness, but someone who is also pure and unstained from the world. You know, without distractions. They're, they're not a divided person. Their heart is pure. Their heart is focused upon the Lord. You know, and so often someone will want to really see or experience God. But when you have a divided heart, it's so difficult to see and experience the Lord working in your life. You know, Jesus said it in the parable of the sower. He said, you know, there are four types of soil. There are those who hear the word and Satan immediately takes it from them. There are those who hear the word and it grows a little, but it cannot take root. And so it perishes because, well, this person had other elements in their minds and hearts, other beliefs that would keep them from really developing and growing. But then there are those who, they do grow, but their growth is choked out because of the thorns and the thistles, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches that, that are present. That person is a person with a divided heart, an impure heart. And so, so often that person would look around and say, where is God? I don't see God. Well, what Jesus said says is, well, the pure in heart, they are those who actually see God at work. They're unmixed within their heart. And Jesus did speak of that fourth soil. He says that person, they receive the word of God, they believe it, and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. They are good soil. They are unmixed, undivided, and there's a depth of earth to them. And so Jesus says, this person, pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed, verse 9, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, the Bible teaches that in this kingdom that we belong to as his sheep and as his people, the Bible teaches that we have a wonderful responsibility and opportunity to bring peace on earth. You remember the the statement there of the, of the angelic realm, glory to God in the highest. And part of that blessing was peace on earth, right? And this is what Christ brings. Second Corinthians chapter five teaches us that as his children, we have what is called a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we are helping people discover that they can be at peace with God. You know, these people who are poor in spirit, we're mourning over sin. We are following the Lord's leadership because of a meekness in our hearts. We hunger and thirst for righteousness above all things. We extend mercy. There's a lack of division inside of our hearts. There's a purity there. We as a people bring peace on this earth. We preach the message of the cross. We tell people of the gospel. These are people, Jesus says, who will be called sons of God. And then, here as he 
gets near the end of the Beatitudes, he says in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see here that this person, with their meekness and their poverty of spirit, their purity of heart, the mercy, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, the preaching the gospel and being a peacemaker, this person, he says, they will experience persecution for righteousness' sake. But blessed are they when they do, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's merely an evidence that they are who they say they are, who they claim to be. Blessed are you, verse 11, when you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so there in verse 11 and 12, Jesus expands on the point he made in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he talks about that persecution a little bit in verse 11 and 12. You know, when others revile you, say all kind of evil against you falsely. He says, when that happens, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven because they persecuted the prophets before you in the same manner. You know, what an opportunity to be placed in that kind of divine and wonderful and glorious company with the prophets who were persecuted before. We live in a world and in a generation, I believe, that persecution is only in one sense going to increase, whether it's emotional kind of persecution or physical kinds of persecution. That persecution will come. And Jesus says, rejoice in it because your reward in heaven is great. It will be painful. It doesn't mean that we'll rejoice as we experience it. It will hurt. But remember, there's a reward in heaven. Then he says to them in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, this, these are amazing statements that Jesus makes here as we wrap up this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. As he looks at this crowd of people, these disciples, and he says, you know, you, you right here, gathered together, receiving my word, you are the salt of the earth. You're the preserving influence. You're the flavor of the world. And you are the light of the world. You are the ones who, when you shine, people can see clearly. They can know the truth. You know, the Bible says that the church, the kingdom of God, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's a huge responsibility that the church has to operate with the identity that God has given to us as the light of the world and as the salt of the earth. And so our position is important. Our position is wonderful. But the Lord has called us to a serious thing, to be that preserving, flavoring, light-bearing influence upon this world. Persecution may come, but our joy 
is to be the light that God has made us to be and to bring glory to our God. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.